The Dr. Coffee Podcast is proudly brought to you by IndemniMed. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. This is episode 49, and at the time of release, we're less than 80, 80 days away from the end of 2023. If you're like many of the coffee beans that listen to this podcast, that means you're just about wrapping up another year of medical school, preparing for your final exams, or closing out a chapter in your fledgling medical career in some other way. So to everyone, Knox and I, the Dr. Coffee team, would like to say good luck and finish well. Coming up in today's episode, we have a really thought-provoking interview with a social architect for positive change in our country, who a few years ago launched an incredible NGO and mobile clinic initiative to drive better access to quality healthcare in South Africa and to reduce systemic inequality. We also have a dive into the annals of medical history to get you thinking laterally about the cost of innovation and discovery in medicine and invite you to share your thoughts on the parallels to today's clinical spaces. As always, it's a privilege to equip and inspire you to be the best healthcare professional you can be. I'd like to remind you to please rate and review the Dr. Coffee podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. If you feel we've earned it, a five-star rating and a thoughtful review about how the podcast has helped or encouraged you would go a long way to supporting the podcast and teaching the ever-learning algorithms that this is a podcast worth listening to. Thank you for taking the time to like, comment, and subscribe on our social media channels as well. You can find us everywhere with the username at DrCoffeeZA, except on TikTok where we go by the name Dr. Coffee Podcast. That's D-R Coffee Podcast. I'm not on TikTok, and frankly, I'm trying to cut down on my addiction to Instagram as it is, but Knox, our social media queen, is, and she's doing an awesome job creating posts and sharing reels for the podcast, so show her some love and appreciation on those platforms as well. We're excited that V Professional Services have come on board as long-term partners and official medical billing sponsors of the Dr. Coffee podcast. V Professional Services is a medical practice administrator, medical bureau, and a professional medical accountant. If you're a new healthcare practitioner, they'll help you from the beginning to the end from registration to practice management and training. And if you're a healthcare professional with another medical billing company, they'll assist you in moving over all of your information with no financial loss or worries. V Professional Services assist a variety of healthcare practitioners with agents across South Africa. Plus, get this, their recovery rate on medical claims is between 95 and 100%. The outcome is that practitioners maintain control of their practices and are able to focus their attention on treating patients, while V Professional Services provide them with healthcare expertise along with all of the professional tools they need to succeed. You can find out more about V Professional Services by visiting their website, vprofservices.com, and checking out their social media on Instagram with the username at vprofservices. Thank you to V Professional Services for their support of the Dr. Coffee podcast. 
we partner with brands and services that share our vision of healthcare and junior doctors in South Africa, and who we believe can add value to your personal and professional development. Along that vein, I'd also like to thank our other title sponsor, IndemniMed from Money and Medicine. IndemniMed is the best way to safeguard your medical practice and future. As a young medical professional charting a course and building a career, you need protection from the financial storms of malpractice claims and legal action with IndemniMed's unparalleled medical indemnity cover. As part of the esteemed Money and Medicine Group, they offer innovative, tailor-made solutions backed by leading malpractice and legal firms across South Africa. So why should you choose IndemniMed? Firstly, they offer personalized protection with an expert team that crafts coverage plans specific to your clinical risk profile, ensuring you're shielded from negligence claims, breaches of contract, and more. Secondly, they've already established an extensive network with access to the best service providers in South Africa, chosen after meticulous assessments of their reputation, financial stability, and track record. And thirdly, their comprehensive process. It begins with a consultation where they offer experts advice on the ideal coverage for your needs, then making an assessment based on a thorough market evaluation to identify your optimal options and recommending the perfect service providers for you. Once those steps are complete, it's time for implementation with effortless setup of your essential coverage and finally ongoing support with continuous assistance as your needs evolve. Whether you're in private practice or the public sector, IndemniMed's coverage plans fortify your practice, your family, and your reputation. Secure your practice's stability with IndemniMed's unwavering commitment to your protection. Don't wait. Ensure your medical journey is safeguarded today. Now that I've told you about some modern solutions to modern problems, let's take a dive into the annals of medicine, about 100 years ago in fact, to the first use of insulin for the treatment of diabetes. I find reading about this particular topic fascinating and it really mesmerizes me every time I think about it because the story of the first patients being treated with insulin almost seems like sheer wizardry and that must have been how it felt to the nurses and hospital staff who witnessed Dr. Banting and Dr. Best administering insulin to young patients in DKA and seeing one patient after the next rise from their hospital beds as if resurrected. It says something about how far medicine has come that this revolutionary medical breakthrough 100 years ago is now so commonplace that not only do intern doctors and nurses routinely prescribe and administer insulin, but we even send patients home with it to dose themselves, to infuse themselves constantly with insulin pumps, and even non-medical people have some understanding of how insulin works and its role in our physiology. Now, insulin is an important test case for our topic in today's episode. Back in 1922, when Dr. Banting and Dr. Best and other scientists involved had perfected the purification and the administration of insulin for diabetes, they recognized the significance of their work, and so they sold the patent for it for just $1, the lowest amount you could accept for intellectual rights to a product. Obviously, Insulin was still quite costly to produce, but selling the so-called recipe, so to speak, for so little meant that Best and Banting were doing their, and you'll pardon the pun, their best to keep the costs down and to make it affordable for as many patients as possible. 
Now, you'd think that as technology has improved and as the number of people living with diabetes has increased, that the cost of insulin would just get cheaper and cheaper. However, because there are so many cogs in the machinery that is healthcare today, and because some of those cogs can be quite selfish, according to some sources, insulin is now the sixth most expensive liquid in the world at $26,000 per liter. That's almost half a million rand for a liter, which is a crazy stat. Doing a full in-depth dive into diabetes and insulin is a little bit beyond the scope of this episode. And quite frankly, there are lots of videos, articles, and even podcasts that have discussed the topic way better than I can. But think about this. Why does it cost approximately $300 in the US for a vial of insulin that costs just $6 to make? The answer is in all of the parts that make up healthcare systems, which are often markets driven by profit and growth. In South Africa, insulin also gets provided to many of our state patients as an essential medicine. So many of our patients are actually protected from the cost directly in that sense, but there's no such thing as a free lunch and there's no such thing as free insulin. And obviously the cost has to be paid. Insulin costs our government millions, if not billions each year. Now, I believe in a free market economy, and of course, everybody is entitled to financial success and should be rewarded for their products and hard work. But I think we can also agree it's a bit crazy for a medicine to cost consumers 50 times what it costs to make, especially one that has millions of daily users worldwide. And it drives up the cost of healthcare overall and means that money that could be allocated elsewhere is spent on overpriced medication. So that prompts today's question. What are some of the things that you think cost way too much in healthcare and what should be done to bring the cost down? Have a little think and let us know in the Q&A for this episode on Spotify, on the Instagram post for this episode, or by sending your response in an email to our email address, drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. If you'd like to find out more about the developments of insulin and the incredible story of the first lives being saved with insulin, check out the show notes for this episode for a few helpful links to get you started. Okay, so a lot has already been said and you've probably also heard about how South Africa has the most unequal society in the world. The Gini Index, that's G-I-N-I, was developed by the World Bank and it's a measure of inequality. The short definition reads as follows. The Gini Index measures the extent to which the distribution of income or consumption amongst individuals or households within an economy deviates from a perfectly equal distribution. A Gini Index of zero represents perfect equality. In other words, everyone has exactly the same, while an index of 100 implies perfect inequality. In other words, one person having everything and other people having absolutely nothing. Now, South Africa scores a 63, which is wild. We are much closer to one person having everything than we are to everyone having equal wealth, access and opportunities. It was actually a little bit better in the year 2000, 
which is when we reached an all-time low of 57, which is still hugely disparate. And I'd say that it's only been kept from getting much worse by the fact that we've had social grants. So why are we talking about this at this point? Well, in today's interview, we're talking with Mr. Aleph Muhlenberg about improving access to quality healthcare in South Africa through mobile clinics, NGOs, and private-public partnerships. Alef Muhlenberg was born and raised in the Netherlands, but has lived the majority of his adult life in South Africa. He's passionate about contributing to solutions for socio-economic challenges like poverty, youth unemployment, and socio-economic inequality through holistic developmental models. He does this out of neighborly love and compassion for people who have historically been disenfranchised and disadvantaged. As an entrepreneur, it is his belief that market-creating innovation is truly able to move the needle when it comes to sustainable transformation. Aleph is currently actively involved in developmental work through various board and executive positions he holds in organizations that are at the front line of implementing social change in African communities. He has direct developmental experience in countries like South Africa, Ghana, Uganda, Mozambique, India, and Brazil. His background is in business administration, education, non-profit management, leadership, philosophy, and theology. Aleph has over 16 years of practical experience in the, and I just love this, full impact, how cool is that, or non-profit sector. You can find links to his current projects, including the mobile clinic projects we'll be discussing, in the show notes for this episode. Without any further ado, here is my interview with Aleph Muhlenberg. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, Aleph Muhlenberg. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for having me on and thank you for the listeners of the podcast also. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking all about your mobile clinics and your journey around that. But there's so much to dive into. So let's start right at the beginning with your story coming to South Africa because you're not born in South Africa, right? So what drew you to this great nation of ours? Um, I think I'll give you the um, abridged version, okay. right? But essentially, I was pretty early with everything. So I finished high school when I was 15, mm-hmm. finished university when I was 19. And at that point, felt like I was at a crossroads okay. to either go into corporate or to not go into corporate. So I applied to the worst high school in the town that I grew up in to become a high school teacher. And in my application, that's I was like, look, I'm... 19, the kids that I would teach are 16, so I understand them. You don't understand them. Wow. Um, but I have a reference point. But then I was, and they hired me based on that so without any experience. So I was a economics and sociology teacher um, for about two years. And then um, had the notion to say, look, in, in the Netherlands, everyone has at least some access to, to education, medical um, but that's not the case elsewhere in the world. So I traveled through uh, YBAM, it's an organization um, from Barbados, um, from studied in Barbados for three months, did an outreach program in South America, and, and it ended up in Amazon jungle of Brazil. Um, wow. There I was asked to build a school in a malaria clinic, and we did. I quit my job, um, kind of uprooted, started to a school and a malaria clinic in Amazon and the group from Barbados came to South Africa in 2010. I joined them and I was like, this is the most unequal country I've ever seen, but wow. also a country with a lot of promise. So then I moved and that was pretty much it. 
I mean, that that really was the abridged version. That was version. a very abridged version. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, high school teacher at 19. Yeah. Teaching economics and sociology. So, yeah. so educated and opinionated in things like distribution and access to care and, yeah. and and growing up in a country like Netherlands which as you said has a very equal society yeah. and a lot of things are state funded do they yeah. have something like NHI there when it comes yeah. to healthcare? Yeah, you have NHI there um, kind of interestingly that kind of came when I was a teenager um, mm-hmm. so before that it was private funded we had two main um, it was partly private, partly public funded, so you had one main public insurance, one private insurance, and now, now everyone is obliged to have private insurance, and but it's subsidized. And, um, okay. So the cost of it is relatively low compared to what you would pay here for, for private insurance. So there's a co-payment system, I would say, um, but in the end of the day, everyone has access mm. um, to relatively high quality mm. primary, secondary, tertiary, and you grew up in a first world country which obviously framed your worldview, yeah. framed your expectation of life and and your experience of what people should be getting. Yeah, but I grew up in the lower middle class section okay. in that. So I also saw, not poverty, I don't want to call it poverty, but I saw what not having full access to that meant in what a way. Would, what would like being lower lower middle income in a country like the Netherlands mean? I mean, yeah. you're not getting the latest iPhone. That's, but, that's one. But are there days where the family is not getting food? Like what's No, that? so it's definitely not that hectic. It was, it was one salary um, and one like government, low, sort of government salary. Um, so my dad was a customs officer. So what it would mean is that you don't go on holidays kind of thing, right? And for, for Europeans, that is a tra- tragedy. Um, but it would mean you do budget on clothing and those kind of things. So my mom started working when, when I was a teenager. So it's by no way, shape or form, a, di- a disadvantaged background. It's a still a very privileged and advantaged background. But um, you do experience that other people have more. And you can see that other people have more. But you can also clearly see when you're going to come to South Africa that there are a lot of people have less, yes. right? And um, from that sense of privilege, but still understanding that I'm not a trust fund baby and I had to work for pretty much everything I had to do, um, you you get an appreciation and understanding of how that works in societies that are a lot more unequal than the, than the Netherlands is. So you left the Netherlands, studied in Barbados for a short time, yeah. and and were obviously equipped to go into places like like Brazil yeah. um, and do some good work there. It was obviously faith-based at that stage. And yeah. um, now coming to South Africa, you were first struck by how, how unequal yeah. the society was. What was it for you that stood out as the first examples, the most glaring examples for you? I think you can't escape it, right? So my initial experience was Cape Town. So then having you see waterfront kind of like city center which are relatively okay well they are okay um and then a few minutes later you're in Guguletu or in Banga or in Kailicha and you're like this these are two completely separate worlds then they only interact when they cross a highway often right yes. and here the the in here in Joburg the it's even closer together than in Cape Town. In Cape Town, it feels a little bit more that when you get to the airport, you see it a lot. But other than that, it feels a little more tucked away. But here, it's literally there's one highway in between Alex and Santa. Yes. And those worlds 
are completely different. And in a Fanonian philosophical fashion, it's the world of have and the world of have not. Mm. And for me, that was super interesting, how that society was obviously constructed by the apartheid regime, but how it still kept intact in, in largely by significant inequality, poverty, unemployment, and ills that come from that. And many factors, like for example, a day's wages in South Africa. Yeah. I mean, there's guys who are doing peace jobs and they were accept accepting 150 rand for a day's work. Well, that, that's the accepted, yeah. that, it's set at that. And guys have the, the ability to say, well, that's what I'm going to pay, you'd like it or yeah. not. And so it's kept like that. But these, these families are locked into poverty in a yeah. sense because, like you said, there's families that are surviving on 5,000 rand a month. And literally two kilometers away, families that are earning 500,000 rand a month, yep. living in expensive homes with every single mod con and yep. staff. And so, so it's crazy how unequal South Africa is. Yep. Okay, so that struck you. Yep. That obviously resonated with you. You were like, I want to do something about yep. it. So what year was that that you decided to make South Africa your permanent home? 2010. Okay. So it's been about 13 years. Around about the time of the Soccer World Cup, yeah. was that a factor at all? There was a lot so, of foreign yeah. investment? And no, so the group from Barbados, which is a faith-based group, they, they were going to Cape Town around the World Cup to refurbish an orphanage. So I was like, oh, that sounds cool, I'll join. I had no, I had no family ties or commitments. I was early 20s. And then that kind of was the initial instigator for me coming in. So it was around the World Cup time. And then from those humble roots, you started branching out into other things. So tell yeah. us about some of the projects you've worked on. Yeah, so initially, our motto as an organization was every child to school. And I remember- Which organization is it? RISA. So it's RISA. still, it's still yeah. around, eh? Yeah, still around. Um, and we were working from a desk of the River Foundation, Rivers Foundation, kind of like at the back corner, um, in saying, okay, how can we, provide better quality education, particularly in townships, initially particularly in Alexandra Township. Um, but quite quickly after that, started realizing that all these things are linked. So poor education is linked to lack of access to quality healthcare, um, which is linked to lack of access to high quality nutrition, which again is linked to lack of access to sustainable livelihoods, like you were mentioning. If someone can get 150 rand per day, that's not really a living wage, yeah. is it, yeah. at all. Um, so we started to develop a more holistic model based on education, healthcare, skills development, and entrepreneurship. And that's the thing when things started to change for us, is to see those symbiotic relationships between those different programs and, and how they interact with each other. So that's when we started to develop in 2013, our first mobile clinic. Okay, because if you want good education, your students need to be healthy and well enough to be in class. Yeah. And all of the things that you mentioned, yeah. right? So this was a, an offshoot, but it soon became apparent that there was a, a great need in healthcare. Yeah. And these mobile clinics service that need. So tell us about the model that you started yeah. with the mobile clinics. So it, it almost went from being an offshoot to the backbone, if that makes sense. Yeah. So rightly what you were saying is that if kids are not healthy, their educational outcomes will be negatively affected, right? If young people are not healthy, their, their productivity is tempered. So our mobile clinics initially started for free. And we built a mobile clinic, 
had a dentist, uh, dental side to it and had a mother and child side to it. And it went to DeepSuit and it was for free. Within a relatively short space of time, we reached, I would say about six, 700 patients per month. And we had the notion, and I was like, look guys, this, I kind of want to use this as a plateau because we want to keep it as a quality service. So we started to charge 20 rand as an administration fee. And we were naive about this um, because we thought that that would cap them, that other people would then say, okay, cool, we don't, if it's a paid for service, I'd rather go to government. The next month we had 1,100 patients at mobile clinic. Oh, so wow. then we were like, okay, cool. There's clearly a connection between paying some sort of fee yes. and a an perception of quality. Our quality of service had not increased at all. Yes. Like it was the exact same service at the exact same location. The only thing that changed was not people had to pay a small amount for it. And our clinics became known as the 20 Rand Clinic. They're not 20 yes. Rand anymore, they're a little bit more expensive. Yes. But at that point in time, it was the 20 Rand Clinic. And anecdotally, that's funny because um, I was living in a complex in, in, in Sharonley at the time, and the security guard was from Deepslow. So he asked me for a Panado, and I was like, cool, I'll give you a Panado, but where are you from? He's like, I'm from Deepslow. I was like, oh, cool, but then you can rather go to the clinic. I was like, I know you, you are. You're the 20 <laughs> Rand Clinic. Wow. And I was like, so it really became by word of mouth. We spent no marketing on this at all. Mm. Just a model where people could have access to low-cost clinics. It's so interesting that that 20 rand that people paid, which is almost nothing in terms of contributing to the actual cost. Yeah. And like you said, the, the quality of care was the same. But the perception was, okay, I'm paying money. Yeah. This must be better somehow. And I think for us... There are two words that kind of describe our model, right? One is dignity and the other is empathy. So if patients pay something for it, they have a say in the type of service they receive, right? And because then if we provide a crappy service, they say, look, but I've paid for this service. Yes. So I can actually not complain about how you're treating this. And that provides them with a sense of dignity. So if I visit the clinic, the first thing I actually do is I visit the bathroom in the clinic. Not to do anything, but to check if it's clean. Because mm. I find if a bathroom is clean, normally it gives an indication as to how well a clinic is maintained and kept. So our nurses know that it's, patients are treated with dignity. They, you treat them with the empathy they deserve, no matter what circumstances they come in with, and no matter how you feel about them, given those circumstances they come in with. And that's been kind of like the almost like the ethos that this has been built on. And that's been really interesting to see how patients receive that. Because patients then start valuing that. And then that value is then driven by paying a fee. But that again links in really, really nicely with them um, feeling that dignity and respect and, and empathy. So, and if just as a humorous side, I think many junior doctors would be able to tell you about um, quite combative or even aggressive patients in the, in the emergency department that are often shouting at us, I pay your salary. And I mean, this is clearly a guy who's not, maybe, maybe not even got 50 bucks to his yeah. name, you know, that's living hand to mouth. And it's actually quite funny how some of the most entitled <coughs> patients, yeah. and I say this carefully, like I want to be yeah. quite gracious, but it's true that some of the most entitled patients we actually see in public, right? Yeah. So what is the expectation that you see patients coming to the clinics? What What is their level of expectation? Yeah, so obviously we're quite careful about communicating with that. And we we normally put a former retired nurse in charge of a clinic. 
larger clinic, particularly, because they have a natural kind of authority with, with their age and with their experience. And they can say things to patients that a younger nurse can't say. So I call her Mama T, who was our clinic in, uh, who was our head nurse in Deepsuit. She tells patients, like, whenever they come with entitlements, like, you're not entitled to anything. But you do need to do A, B, C, and D to get better. And if you don't do that, I'll be on your case, kind of thing. So you do get a lot of patients who come with, with their children for inoculations, vaccinations, um, or they come for family planning purposes. But um, a lot of the time, they, they because we don't do surgery, right? They, they don't come with the expectation that we immediately save their life. They do come with an expectation that their children are seen to, yes. and that we tell them the truth about their their health status. And we, we teach our nurses how to tell the truth in a loving way. It's um, so important. And especially if someone has HIV, um, and if they then gave birth naturally without being on ARVs, then our nurses will tell them that that was very un- irresponsible, and you put the child at high risk. Um, so having those honest conversations with patients, even if they don't like it and go to, go to another clinic afterwards, we're like, we're okay with that actually. Yeah. Um, because then it attracts patients who appreciate it. You know, I think it's important to remember that these principles apply in healthcare hmm. across the board. Yeah. Right? So you should be treated as a human being, yeah. whether you are in Alex Community Health Center, or your clinic's the 20 Rand Clinic, or you're in Morningside Medical Clinic up the road. Whatever you, wherever you're getting care, those principles of autonomy, beneficence, but non-beneficence, all of those things should apply. What you've touched on is the fact that there's not really justice yeah. in the distribution of our care. And you have provided an opportunity to try and close that gap. Yeah. And it's been growing. I mean, tell us about some of your successes. Tell us about the growth. Yeah, I think that the growth happened quite organically, I want to say. So we started with this one clinic in Deep Slurts, um, and kind of we use, in very business sense, a lean startup methodology. So you create an MVP, a minimum viable product, in this case, a mobile clinic. You then test it in a market, you get feedback from that market, and you constantly have a loop where you improve based on that feedback. And See, your economics background is coming through. Coming right? through, right? <laughs> um, and then, and then you look at what, what disease patterns do you find in specific communities to, to target those disease patterns. So you look at upper respiratory, lower respiratory infections, you look at HIV, you look at family planning. Yeah, you're not going to really have a phyochromosome clinic. No, no, <laughs> no. You're going to look at, at pneumonia, right? Yeah. Pneumonia is, is a very prevalent, yeah. prevalent uh, disease that we find there. But then in Rwanda, where we're now starting clinics, it will be more focused on malaria, right? Because malaria is more of a less on HIV because it's less prevalent there, but malaria is higher, has a higher disease pattern there. So it really depends on the context then. But what we then learned from that one clinic is that there's significant demand for these services. And again, to go back to kind of my economics background, we then look at, okay, how do we create a market for this? Because in essence, a lot of the patients that we serve can't afford private a surgery, a private surgery in deep skirts, where you pay five to 700 rand. That's too expensive for them. But they do have some disposable income and therefore would prefer not to wait for eight hours because their employer would then say, okay, cool, if you wait for eight hours, I'm not gonna pay you for that thing, you know? Or, or worse, they might fire them. So we then say, okay, can we come at a bracket that's lower than that, that maximizes about 200 rand per consultation? Then you then, that's how we built our model around it, to say, it will be nurse-led because yes. If a GP is involved, it would be too expensive. Maybe we can call in a GP via telemedicine or whatever it is. 
But the nurses essentially are the primary caregiver in that case. And that model is then built on a 200 rand consultation fee max, and that's how we've been scaling. And the nurse then eventually then, it, through a number of iterations of that lean incubation model, we were then like, okay, why doesn't the nurse own the clinic? We put up the initial infrastructure, and the nurse can repay that from revenue over a period of five to seven years, so that she then actually is the owner of the clinic. And after she repays that, so she can stay within our network of clinics, or she can say, you know what, I would prefer to run my clinic by myself. And that's for us as empowerment and self-sustainability, which is kind of what our most of our models are built on. And it's a good mix of like socialist ideals yeah. of equal access, yeah. but then also the capitalistic goal of giving people autonomy, giving yeah. people independence, giving people the opportunity to uh, venture forward on their own, where you're not saying, okay, this is the standard and this is how much you're gonna get. But if you are actually motivated and you drive yourself and you set new standards yep. of excellence, you can be rewarded for that, which is something that's important to, to reward pockets of excellence, to yep. reward professionalism and effort that people put into their own individual um, benches, right? Yeah, because I think if you only look at it from a socialistic perspective, you take away the responsibility of an individual, right? So, because for us, that's a fine balance. It's to say, we want to provide access and we want everyone to have the opportunity to access that, but then you still have a responsibility to do so. Um, and if you don't have that responsibility, then it often ne neglects that, that component of excellence, because then average is okay. But here, everyone has a responsibility with our models there. And if someone would prefer to go to a government clinic and get a bucket of KFC, then <laughs> that's their choice, you know? That's perfectly okay with us. But if yeah. someone says, okay, we, we want to actually go to your clinic for A, B, C, and D reason, because I would prefer to wait one hour instead of eight hours that can be more productive. Then those are patients that come to our clinic. And we, we're not judging those who are not coming to our clinic, but we equally are very grateful to those who come to our clinic. So it, it provides a, a middle ground, and I think a sort of a balance between that so those socialistic kind of frameworks that I kind of, to a large extent, have grown up with and, and to, to a large extent believe in, but also equally that there's individual responsibility that everyone has to take charge of their own life. And I think those two mixed together provide really interesting outcomes. Let's take a quick break to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors, V Professional Services. As we said earlier, they're a medical practice administration and medical billing service provider with national distribution and reach. They've been in the profession for over 13 years and have a recovery rate on medical claims of more than 95%. Their attention is focused on saving you, the clinician, time and money. V Professional Services protects the goodwill of your practice and cherishes the relationships you have with your patients positively influencing financial performance and turning around obstacles that prevent your practice from achieving its goals. Having worked with some of the best partners in the world of healthcare, V Professional Services has very extensive insights and a broad understanding of the entire healthcare market. As a company, they have a genuine understanding of what is required to run a successful medical practice. This knowledge and expertise, along with their high service delivery standards, allow V Professional Services to provide the best solutions and comprehensive support to healthcare providers across South Africa. They create a tailor-made package for your practice needs and only bill on what they recover. Their service also includes all the setup costs for the hardware and software for the practice to manage their own online billing through online practice management platforms. 
V Professional Services are one of the only service providers in the country registered for debit order management. This means that they can monitor debtors accurately and effectively by ensuring that you receive all funds, be it private patients or short payments by medical scheme companies, in a fraction of the time normally spent collecting these amounts. It also ensures a highly efficient collection rate without the need for any costly legal action taken or patient liable amounts being written off. They supply you with the patient information form accompanied by a debit order mandate and any amounts due are collected in a simple and cost-effective manner without the patient being phoned or harassed. This keeps your practice goodwill intact and has an explosive effect on your cash flow as uncollectible amounts practically fall to zero. This service is available on all of their products and offerings which can be tailor-made to your requirements. V Professional Services packages include some of the following services. Submitting all claims electronically to medical aid companies with the cost included, following up on claims and administrating as well as patient data management, thus minimizing admin costs at your practice or clinic, efficient and professional administration and collection of medical aid claims and private patient fees, detailed reports on all patient visits, payments outstanding and received, backup of medical data daily, IT support, and accounting services including payroll management, tax advisory services, and legal assistance at a discounted rate. You can book an appointment on their website or reach them by emailing marketing at vprof.co.za or phoning 012-348-3567. Thank you, V Professional Services, for your support of the Dr. Coffee podcast. So I'm going to dovetail with your KFC bucket analogy. <laughs> There's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. So everyone has to to pay to enter the game, right? So in the beginning, I, I imagine you didn't come across from Europe as a young, wealthy, 20-something-year-old uh, Dutch boy with millions of euros. Yeah. So how did you fund it in the beginning? What was the capex? So the first clinic was the first was actually in Brazil, right? So we... I sold fat cooks around Christmas, so we call them Oliboller. So I went, we did um, ice skating events, we sold Oliboller, we, I went, um, did pretty much anything you can imagine within the bounds of legal racing fights kind of idea <laughs> of uh, you neck your neighbors, friends, family and fools, right? That idea of getting people to just contribute towards the first setting something up. And I took the phone book and I went, okay, cool, I'll start with A. and I've, will email every single company I can find. This, wow. remember, this is like 15 years ago, so yes. phone books were still around. Yeah. So I, I emailed every company that I could find, and when I came to B, there was a company that responded and said, I'll give you 700 euros. Wow. <laughs> and that, that was such a confident booster. Um, but then when it came to South Africa, there were a number of organizations that quite quickly came on board. So Experian was one of the first organizations that came on board, IDC, Philips who yes. you interviewed a few weeks ago, Yes. Um, came on board, um, First Rent came on board. So those yeah. big corporates came on board and um, invested in, was this part of their CSI spend? Were they asking for any kind of money back? What was the... No, so that's part of their CSI spend initially. Um, and it was interesting. So I, I got some funding from the Netherlands through an insurer. Mm. Um, and I went to the IDC and said like, we have the funding from a Dutch company, but this is a South African initiative, so surely there yeah. must be South African party involved as well. And that causes us around to sitting around the table, and they like the model, and we still partner with the IDC. They've been really, really an amazing partner. 
Um, but then they also look at how can we make this more sustainable at that time. So some of these parties have helped us to develop the economic models behind what we are doing, essentially. Um, but it initially particularly came mainly from CSI budgets, and now we're starting to dip into more commercial budgets. And you were explaining to me that, and, and you've already touched on it already, the nurses that are able to run the clinics, yeah. and they, they initially take on a 1 million rand loan yeah. to start the clinic, yeah. that they have seven years to pay off. Yeah. And you were explaining to me that there already are sisters who have paid off their clinics, and so they're now independent yeah. practitioners, they've got more than nine, ten sisters running consultation rooms at the same time in their clinics, which sounds amazing. You actually are creating employment yeah. and opportunity in these communities that's not dependent on your organization anymore. It gives yeah. them the autonomy to say that this is my own thing. And I think, so we launched the clinic this morning, funny enough, um, in Deep, a mobile clinic in Deepslut, because it's easy from, from Deepslut to operate to other communities. But our largest clinic is there, right? Which is about an eight, nine consulting room clinic. And we asked one of the community members to say something about why this is so important. And the first thing they highlighted was the job creation component. Even more than the health access to healthcare component, because the, the situation is often so dire that you don't realize how important those jobs are. So we, through that clinic, we create about 20 jobs or so, but, and it seems marginal, right? In the larger scheme of things. But for them, that was such an important thing. So that was actually what she started with. They were grateful for this clinic because of the jobs that it creates. And then afterwards, and the care. Like yeah. that, it, in that it contributes to the clin to the community, right? But yeah, so for me, that's exactly what what this model encourages, and that's why we call it market creating innovations. In a way, is that market creating innovation should always lead to job creation, and should always lead to more jobs in a particular field, like being created instead of efficiency innovations, where it's the other way around, right? Efficiency innovations is like, okay, cool, we're actually trying to detract jobs, but market-creating innovations should grow jobs. And that's what we're trying to do. Again, your economics background is coming to so importantly. How much do you think somebody like yourself needs clinical information? And, and, and like speak to the truth of if there's yeah. weaknesses, if there's deficiencies, if there's strengths. Yeah. Um, and then what us as junior doctors need to understand about working in South Africa, yeah. because there's NHI on the horizon, yeah. but there's also opportunities and challenges. So what do you see from your economics point of view yeah. that we as clinicians need? And then what do you feel like we can bring to you to contribute yeah. our, our, our um, eyes and our ears and our brains? So I think, from from it, I understand business models mostly, and then and up market opportunities. So that's kind of why how we built this model, right? And over time, you then start to learn some medical terms. And in the beginning, I was like, I have no clue what you guys are saying. I just know that this works. Um, but I'll outsource the the medical side of things to nurses essentially at that point. Over time, you, I I learned a bit more about the actual medical terms. But I think where where doctors in particular or, or clinicians can add tremendous value. You guys see the whole value chain, right? We see a patient coming to our doors. We then at some point have to refer them to up the value chain into tertiary care, and then they get back referred to us. So we have very limited scope with what happens there and how that interlinks, right? And we only see them coming in probably at a better level that if, than if they would go directly to a hospital um, and it would, to an extent, waste your time. Well, I think that I think that to some extent it's true that we, we understand the value chain, but sometimes that's only in theory. Yeah. Because all of our medical schools are based in large metros. Yeah. 
So your training sites are in metros. So yeah. even though you go into a clinic as part of your medical school rotations, it's typically at a larger clinic yeah. like a community health center yeah. where there are doctors yeah. and there are pharmacists and there's even physios sometimes yeah. and optometrists yeah. and dentists. Yeah. Whereas the majority of South Africa is a nurse-led yeah. clinic with community healthcare workers like the real yeah. based outreach, yeah. outreach teams sometimes without any doctor yeah. or, or there's towns where the doctor comes one day a week and he rotates through yeah. so that's the one aspect and the other thing is that it's possible to actually silo yourself off from the full experience which is why internship is so important yeah. because internship forces you to be exposed to the full value yeah. chain and even if you want to be an orthopedic surgeon one day you need to understand what the family physician is going to do you need to understand how the emergency department runs. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why these conversations are so important as well, because we can then respect the role of NGOs, the role of private and public partnerships, yeah. the role of these mobile clinics, and not just be like, oh, well, it's just primary health care clinic. Yeah. No, that's, that's taking away a significant part of, I don't want to call it brainless, but the, the mundane and routine yeah so that your really specialist skills can shine and come yeah. to the fore, right? Yeah, and I think what it adds also is that you start appreciating the patient journey a little bit more. Is that some patients have to go through a significant journey to actually come to you, you know? And often I feel that, that's, and it's, it's, it's natural to say, okay, cool, patient comes to me through my door, this is my first interaction with that patient, so it's your first reference point to that patient. But that patient might have seen a, a nurse or a doctor four or five times, or if they go to a government facility, they might have been sent away four or five times, right? Wow. Especially if they're foreign. So in deep so most, not most, half of the patients that we see are foreign nationals. The only reason they come to us is because they're sent away from government facilities. And like talks that I again read about this week around the importance of hiring locals instead of foreigners, those talks contribute to that. That all of a sudden now government facilities say, no, I don't want to see foreigners. Mm -hmm. And therefore they come then again to us. But to see what kind of journey they've had to go through to see you. So one of our patients had, had cervical cancer, right? It was picked up a year, a year before she was actually seen by a surgeon. And we had to push for that person to be seen. And every time there was either load shedding or there was something happening, waiting list, um, she had to go to three different hospitals just to be treated. By the time that she was treated, now her cervical cancer has been um, spread to um, um, other parts of the body. So see now it needs to be again seen for so and those are wastes of lives yes. that I think if the journey of a patient is seen better, understood better and is integrated better within the system, those lives are, are actually could be saved. Yeah, well it all comes down to systems thinking, right? Exactly. Because you were explaining how uh, systems thinking is all about efficiency and having yeah. the right tools in the right areas. Yeah. You're not going to have a malaria specialist team in the middle of the career where there's yeah. zero malaria. Exactly. And you want to make sure that the patients are seen by the appropriate level of care. Yeah. And that's great, but that referral system sometimes is a barrier to access in its own because the GP who does the pap smear and then says, come back in a month yeah. for your results, that in, within that month, there's no treatment. Yeah. You know, we, we've lost time, we've lost ground. And then there's a referral to an, an OPD that will only give you a date for two months and, and so on and so forth. And so it keeps getting forced down the ladder. Yeah. And this, this might sound counterintuitive, right? Because we're talking about systems and stuff like that. But 
What we found to be very effective is for nurses to have a relationship with people in hospitals. It's because then it's like if, again, Mamati, Angola, knows someone in Raima Musa and says, okay, I have an emergency patient that I have to send this one now. Um, can you make time for this? Again, there's a relationship there, right? And when that patient then comes, there's at least some background. And I think that often is not encouraged. And we always encourage our nurses to do that, to say, okay, build relationships with your referral clinics, right? Or your referral hospitals in order to ensure that that is really there and that you can refer to a person, not just to a system. Um, and yeah, again, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but we, we try to do that. So through this journey, which has now been 13 years, yeah. um, mobile clinics may be the majority of the last eight years. What have been the highlights for you? I think the growth that it has, so for me, I, I, I'm a visionary. So I envision things and then seeing that those things come to fruition and actually work is super exciting. Um, what I need to learn and I'm constantly learning is that there are individual people in that system, right? So seeing someone earn their first clinic or seeing own their first clinic or seeing a patient now receiving quality care that they didn't have access to before, those things are really rewarding. And People don't, they have no clue who I am, right? When, hopefully, they have no clue who I am. When I walk through this the tall white Dutch guy. Yeah, this tall, tall white weird Dutch guy. <laughs> but just them seeing, going through the mill and getting treatments and stuff like that, I'm like, this actually really works. We thought about this in a conceptualization phase that this should work, but then for it to see come to fruition and work and really make impacts, but still being viable from an economics perspective. That's really exciting. And that's not always initially the case. So we have to go to a number of those iterations of refining it and, and, and rethinking and being agile. But then eventually, often it does work. And, and that's really exciting to see. And then the people in the organization to take ownership and to grow in that um, is probably where I get most of my joy from. Um, yeah. So the follow-up question is then obviously, what are some of the negative experiences you've had? The, the perils and the pitfalls to look out for and some yeah. of the things that have been disappointing because I'm sure it hasn't always been rosy. Yeah, so I think even though we have a quite a good relationship with governments, um, it's hard to work with governments. And why? why is, what, it's the bureaucracy about? around it. It's, we, we're in a fast moving space, right? But we once worked with governments around getting an SLA done around dental care. It took three years. Wow. Because the HOD changed and the HOD needs to stamp, put his stamp so on it. So you need to tell new people all the, all time, the time what the plan is. And at is, some point I was like, look, you know what? I don't did you have to represent from the beginning? So at some point, yeah, you did. So you did have wow. to represent from the beginning and um, had to redo another SLA. And um, so that can be quite discouraging, I would say, um, especially because we're trying to get the cost of access to care as low as possible. So the more governments can provide in terms of consumables or whatever it is, the cheaper it would be for us to provide that service to the end user, right, to the patient. Um, so that that's lack of understanding of like where we are as a country, I think, was was a little discouraging. Even though they're fantastic people in those departments um, who work their 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 bums off on a daily basis, um, and and. Yeah, we've built really good relationship with. I think the system itself yeah. is not encouraging kind of social entrepreneurship. And if we then compare that to other settings, like another African country, the, the entire model that we have, the nursepreneur model, was already there. 
we yes. just they were like just like yeah we have this already yeah. but we would like you to train the nurses and begin more entrepreneurial I was like this is amazing yeah um but such difference ethos from an from a well, government I think so I'm I'm look I'm not the biggest fan of governments either but I think it's important to recognize what their role is exactly right? they need yeah. they, they have a very protective yeah. role and, um, and it's good for them to take it seriously yeah. because you can't have people who come along under the guise of social entrepreneurship Flat hey, this is an opportunity yeah. for us to make a little bit of money off the public you yeah. know like 20 rand a, a, yeah. a patient for 20,000 uh, yeah. patients we're going to make a killing you know um, so, but you would think that after ten years of doing this, yeah, that there would be a slight change in the in the approach. But you know, like we, but we that's what happens when people get redeployed exactly. and moved around. Yeah. Right? It's so not necessarily the best people for the job. It's the people who have yeah. the loyalties, or it's their time to shine. And, and we completely appreciate what they do, and that we can refer to them. And on a local level, they're like I said, they're fantastic people. Because local is the community leaders community. themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like the nurses yeah. who actually come from that area. Yeah. And, and also the, the, the interrelatedness between a government facility and our facility in a community. And that works often really, really well and there's, there's very little friction around that. But just getting SLAs done is very, very difficult. Um, so I think that's where sometimes the frustration comes in, especially because we are fast-paced. So we, we're not the most patient people in the world either, <laughs> so we have to take some credit, some not credit, we have to take some responsibility <laughs> yeah. there as well. But so that can be discouraging and I think some of like on a more personal level, when you go into communities a lot, you, you, I think we we addressed this a little before on a personal note, but you see things that you don't ideally want to see on a daily basis. So yeah. people being stabbed, people being shot, having yeah. a gun against your head yourself. So yeah. those things are. Well, this is this is what we were saying beforehand: is that because primary healthcare has become nurse-led. Yeah. As a as a junior doctor, you're going to end up seeing more trauma. Yeah. Because yeah. nurses aren't treating trauma. So you end up yeah. going like, oh my gosh, 70% of my job in this clinic is now stitching up heads. Yeah. But if it wasn't for all of these mobile clinics, 70% of your job would be prescribing anti hypertension. Which a nurse could do, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And measuring blood pressure, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, so I think I'm quite excited about that. And I think, again, we can use innovation down the line to streamline that further. And innovation, I don't particularly only mean technology, actually, far from it. but to streamline that and make it more affordable um, and also take into account more than, okay, what does that do with a doctor or with an intern if that person is only seeing trauma? Because that is traumatic, excuse the pun, but that's traumatic in its own right, right? So it changes your perception of your patient. Yeah, treats yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I think, I think all in all that, for you ask for negative experiences, so I think those are some of the negative experiences, but. I think all in all the experience has been a lot more positive than negative. Sometimes you have to go through frustrations, but those also strengthen your determination to make this work. Do you think South Africa could ever reach true equality of care? It really depends on, on how something like NHI is implemented. I think NHI in Africa has very positive examples and very negative examples. And if we learn from those positive and negative examples, um, of, of access to care, I think we can uh, we can get equality of access. I don't know if we can uh, can reach equality of quality of care. I think there's a difference, um, but I think if we can at least achieve the first initially, then we can worry about making the quality equal elsewhere. 
point. Um, but I think the first is the priority at this point. Love that answer. Alef Rillenberg, it was an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. Before we kind of wrap up, what is something that you'd like to encourage young doctors and medical students with in South Africa? A message to them. Being entrepreneurial as well. So, um, if I as a non-medical practitioner can come up with entrepreneurial models that work um, in a medical field, then you you have a significant competitive advantage over me is that you know medicine and I don't. Um, so I think there's so much opportunity in using the skills that you have uh, from your medical training and develop it into economically viable models that fit into the current public-private partnerships, that fit into the current context really well, um, and that can create jobs in the end of the day. And I think there, the um, landscape is really, really exciting for that. And, and we have a lot of bright, uh, brilliant doctors here who. I think can really make a difference when they have an entrepreneurial hat on as well. Do you want to give a shout out to any of the big corporates that you work here with now, people that you really appreciate their support and their help? Yeah, and I think all, this, all the organizations that have been there from the get-go, so some of the bigger ones are Philips, um, who are a medical equipment partner, um, with the IDC has been there from the get-go, First Rand funds most of our mobile clinics, Contribute Foundation, it's a, it's a Dutch family fund, they have been absolute rock stars when it comes to trialing our, um, our almost like network-based nurse-owned nursepreneur model. Um, so those are some of the people who come to mind, but also just people like Sister Tandi and Mama T and um, like hidden, hidden, um, Lydia, who's a dental nurse, who've been there for nine years and have gone through all these iterations of changes and who just put their daily sweats into what we, what whatever funky ideas we came up with <laughs> and kind of um, without them these kind of models are useless right then yeah. they're just a model a leader without anyone following is just taking a walk so that's kind of the idea um, and the, so we have a lot to be grateful for and the government as well the Department of Health has bought into this and has provided consumables to some of our clinics and we are very very grateful for it amazing I love that Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for appearing on the podcast to educate and inspire our young doctors. I think you've challenged us a little bit in our thinking, to be a little bit bigger in our thinking, to be entrepreneurial and to make a difference in South Africa. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you were encouraged, motivated, educated and inspired. If you'd like to reach out to the podcast, our email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's D-R-Coffee-Z-A with no punctuation marks. You can also check us out on social media. Our Instagram account is at drcoffeeza. And you can also find us on YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook. Let us know what you thought of the episode and if there's any way we can improve or any topics that you'd like us to discuss as well as any consultant guests you'd like us to interview, there's still a wide range of specialities we haven't covered in our Coffee with Consultants feature. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast and keep on listening. Bye for now.